0: Hey, friends. For the month of December, we're bringing back old episodes of Boss Barista. Here's one of the most popular episodes I've ever done, and it's with Carla Boza, who owns a coffee farm with her family in El Salvador. This episode originally aired in July of 2019, and Carla's stories and perspectives have completely changed me. I call this one of the most transformative episodes of the show that I've ever aired. And I still think about the things that Carla shared in not just the interviews I do, but in the stories I write and the ideas that I pursue. You can find a full transcript of this episode at bossbarista.substack.com. Here's Carla. Hey friends, this is Boss Barista, I'm Ashley Rodriguez. A few weeks ago, I was honored to attend RICO, a coffee convention that invites speakers from all over the world to talk about these big ideas in coffee. This year's conversation was focused on coffee prices and the crisis that we face as the price of coffee dips lower and lower. I talked to the head of the Coffee Price Crisis Response Initiative a few weeks ago, so if you want more context on that, listen to the Rick Reinhardt episode a couple of episodes back. But At one of the lunches during the conference, I met Carla Boza, a third generation coffee farmer in El Salvador. And the way that she spoke about the coffee prices was in a way that nobody else was at this conference because it affected her everyday life. She was one of a handful of coffee farmers at this conference talking about coffee prices. Don't you think that maybe more of the players affected by the crisis should have been in that room? talking about this crisis? In this conversation that I recorded with Carla, which you'll hear in a moment, we talk about the flaws in coffee buying. We often applaud coffee roasters, the folks that are on the other end of the supply stream, for being transparent with their prices, but are the prices that they're paying actually changing the lives of farmers? Mostly no. Being transparent doesn't make a price fair, and oftentimes the business of paying a higher price comes with a demand from a coffee farmer to do something extra for their coffee to stand out or taste different, which ends up costing the producer even more money. In this episode, I urge you to rethink the way that you consider quality, not just in coffee, but in every realm. Carla's experiences with coffee buyers ranging from being tricked by an importer who told them that their coffee was shit to another noting that it was a standout from the samples that they were sent question where quality really comes from. And if we should be basing our price standards on arbitrary markers of quality, this is easily one of the most informative and remarkable conversations I've ever had. And I promise we'll be hearing more from Carla in the near future. Before we begin, I should note that the term coffee stream comes from Kebacante, owner of Red Bay Coffee in Oakland, California, who used this term during his talk at Rico, which is the event that Carla and I met at. So, without further ado, let's listen to our conversation with Carla Boza. I am
1: Carla Boza. I am from El Salvador, and I am a coffee farmer. And my farm is San Antonio, Amatepec, and it's located in San Salvador. So it's like uh, 15 to 20 minutes away from the city. So it's in a pretty urban area.
0: Did you grow up on the farm? Like, is this a generational family farm?
1: Um, So I would technically be like a third generation coffee farmer. And this farm, uh, my dad, he technically started this farm he bought it when it used to just be used for grazing part of it so there were no trees nothing and then another part of it used to be a stone quarry so then it was sort of like the private um stone area for a local architect and he would just be like blowing up parts of the hill whenever he had a project so there was nothing there before and then he sort of went starting that a little bit and I didn't grow up there I grew up in like the main part of the city. And we used to go like every other weekend to the farm with my family. So then I wasn't ever really taught, you know, like how to be a coffee farmer. I would just
0: go there to hang out um, with my family for the weekends. So what point did you decide that that was something that you and your family wanted to do?
1: So my, my dad, he had been doing this specifically at this farm since 1969, which is when he bought it. And ever since then, you know, he had been working in that. And I don't know really why with my sisters, we weren't ever really involved up until maybe a few years ago when it was SCA in Atlanta. And at that point, I was I had finished college and I had studied sociology. So then I was doing something that wasn't related at all. With coffee, I was working at a nonprofit with um, water projects, so nothing to do, right? But my sisters called me, and they were like, you know, my dad, uh, our farm is certified by Rainforest Alliance. So then he sent in some samples, and he was invited to like the yearly breakfast that they do at SCA. So then I was like, okay, sure, you know, like I'll go th- um, with him and support him and everything. So we went to Atlanta. And that's sort of when I started to get more involved. And at this SEA, my whole mind was just blown with how incredible the coffee industry is because we hadn't ever really been involved in specialty coffee. We were growing specialty quality coffee, but we weren't involved in that area simply because we didn't really know how it worked or even in my personal experience that it existed. You know, like I had gone to like specialty coffee shops before, but I didn't really. See the difference um between that just that maybe they were brewing like using methods or things like that, but so that's sort of where I started to get involved, and I saw how my dad's coffee like the quality that he was growing belonged to this other category of coffee that wasn't being recognized because up until then, what we were doing was that all of the coffee was turned into a local mill, so then you know, like literally a, a little truck would show up to your farm, you would load the coffee cherries. And a few days later, you would get paid. And we never knew where it ended, where the coffee went, who was buying it, at what price it was being sold, nothing because we were getting paid at um, market prices. And every once in a while, we would get paid a little bit more because it was Rain First Alliance certified. So then at that breakfast, we happened to be sitting with this lady who was a Q grader, and she happened to remember our coffee. And I was like, what? You know, this whole time we had been told by this local exporter that our coffee was shit. Literally, that's what he told my dad. He, because we would ask for samples to send to this breakfast and they'd be like, oh, no, your coffee is so bad that we just mix it in with all of the other coffee. So then we don't really have any traceability for your coffee because it sucks, so we were like, you know, okay, whatever it is, what it is. And then, you know, like, how come this woman then, who's a Q grader, who's cupped thousands of coffees, happens to remember this one specific coffee from like a shitty farm? So then we were like, something, something's wrong here, you know? So then that night I went and I started Googling our farm and I realized that the exporter had been selling our coffee to specialty coffee roasters in the UK and they were using Everything, you know, they were using like our pictures, our story of the farm, um, my dad's name, a picture of him, like everything, everything, everything. And I was like, whoa. So I asked my dad, I'm like, did you know that this is going on? And he was like, what? He had no idea. So and that was part of it. And then the other part happened the next day when we were going around um, the show. And my dad, he found some friends and they were talking. And then this guy with me standing next to my dad, he just goes up to my dad and he's like, oh, you know, I am so sorry that you only have three daughters because who's going to look after the farm afterwards? And I was standing right there and I was like, what? So then I'm very stubborn and my sisters are as well. So then that's sort of what pushed me to get involved and be like, no, like next time I see this man, I want to show him that I got involved in something that he thought that I didn't belong in. So then it was more of like to prove him wrong and also to get the, you know, like the value out of the coffee that we were producing. So it was a mixture of
0: things. That's, this is a story you have told me before, and I'm still listening to it. And I'm like, oh my God, like the idea that you would be told that your coffee is terrible and then someone else make a makes like this huge profit off of it. Do you think that that's something that happens a lot, like the lack of information to farmers being exploited?
1: Yeah, definitely. This is, you know, like it's um, our story and it's very sad and everything. But at the same time, what makes it worse is that this is like the most common story that you will find across like coffee farmers, you know, like. We have all had this happen to us. Like, it's not something unique to us. Um, You can have all of them tell you, you know, like, oh, this local exporter is only paying this much, or this local exporter is paying that much. And they are all prices that are just so bad. And then when you go and you talk to roasters or Q graders, they tell you, like, you know, like, coffee from El Salvador, even if it's grown at a low altitude and it's not well taken care of and this and that and blah, 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 like, it's generally really good tasting and it's usually you know like maybe not necessarily specialty but pretty much up there so it's pretty sad to see all of these older people because you know most of the coffee producers these days are like of an older generation all of these people who are the age of my dad or maybe like someone's grandfather they are all being told these lies that are just horrible and they're being taken advantage of either by local exporters or like international How, What does the coffee
0: scene look like in El Salvador right now? You mentioned before that you had been to some specialty coffee shops, but you weren't really sure where your farm kind of fell in that realm until you went to SCA. Yes. Yeah,
1: so before there were maybe like one or two coffee shops that I didn't even know were considered specialty um, up until now maybe because the thing is that here our local market it's like flooded with like really good coffee because we produce it so then even the coffee that is maybe not the best out of that farm it gets sold it gets sold um, locally and it's still pretty good so then without knowing you know like everyone here has been drinking really good coffee for a while but then what's happened recently with the um with the market that it's so bad right now is that A lot of farmers or people they have decided to open up their own coffee shops, so then out of nowhere, you just see all of these coffee shops popping up everywhere, and they have really good coffee. Um, they there have also been some roasters that are popping up as well, and they are roasting like really well, and it's something that I'm so proud of because now you know, like not all of the good coffee goes abroad. A lot of it stays here and it's starting to get recognized. Like all of these coffee shops, like they're starting to have um, like guest roasters come in or they open up cuppings to people so we can start to value, you know, like our own national product in a way. Like just yesterday, I was at this mall that just opened near our farm. It's like a strip mall. And in the food court area, there's this coffee roaster. It said like coffee roasters, right? So then I went in to see if I could offer them samples for coffee. And they're just like, Oh, no, like, thank you for your interest. But um, this is actually the coffee roastery slash coffee shop of a farmer. So I was like, what? It's so cool that everyone is, you know, like starting to get interested in selling their coffee in the local um, market. So then that's really cool.
0: Something you mentioned earlier is that one of the reasons people are starting to produce and consume more coffee in El Salvador is that the market outside of El Salvador is really bad. Can you talk a little bit about that, what it what it looks like selling your coffee to exporters? Um, sure. So we started selling our coffee independently a
1: year ago. So then after Atlanta, you know, we were all just like left with this big question in our mind of what we had to do in order to survive, you know? So I, we started looking into it. And with with my sisters, we convinced our dad of, we don't have our own mill. So then we convinced him of, um, going through a local privately owned mill that is specialized in processing specialty coffee. So we convinced him. We had no idea of what we were doing. We were just angry about the whole situation, you know, of people taking advantage of him and everything. So we went through that route and Really, I think that the best thing that has happened to us personally has been having social media presence. So I opened up an Instagram page for our farm and, you know, like posting pictures every once in a while, commenting on stuff, the usual. And when it was time for the harvest and to start like selling our coffee, you know, we had never done this before. And there is no manual or instructions on how you become, you know, like a coffee not an exporter, because we're technically not exporting it, but like commercializing all of this coffee. So I just started reaching out to people through Instagram <laughs> because you know that's that's what I knew how to do. So started reaching out to some roasters and fortunately girls who grind coffee in the UK, they were interested in our story. We sent them samples and they got back to us pretty quickly, and it was just so amazing to hear this first confirmation of having someone value, you know, like not just yourself, but have someone else value your coffee and be willing to pay for it a fair price. And just dealing with them has been so incredible because it's been completely transparent, you know, and we have both been moving on our ends to see that everything goes well. And that was really cool. So then for this year, we already had, sort of like the proof that our coffee was, was valued elsewhere. And, you know, we continued the same strategy, going to different shows, sending samples and everything. And it has been pretty good. And what we have found that has worked for us the best has been approach roasters that share sort of like the same Values that we do. So then they are interested in transparency, they are interested in female empowerment, all of these things that we value in sustainability, um, the environment. So then that has been pretty cool because I have also tried to approach importers and it has just been like the complete opposite. You know, I think that we have been talking to some importers since maybe November of last year and they take maybe like a month or so to get back to us so then clearly they're not interested you know or I spoke with this other importer in the UK and yeah it was pretty bad supposedly their page said that they specialized in selling coffee that was sustainable and that they valued all of these like great social and environmental things and once we started talking and they're like oh yeah we only pay like 115 So that's like one fifteen per pound. And I was like, what? (laughs) You know, if you value all of these things, then you know that that's not enough. Um, So fortunately, we found an importer who we also love. They're based in Canada, and it's called Mountain Coffee. So then we're working with them this year to import our coffee to Canada and to parts of the U.S., And they have been great, you know, like they came to see the farm, they saw the mill, they met other producers that we really love here. And they were really interested, you know, in like purchasing coffee in a way that is fair and respectful on both ends. So then that has been pretty neat. So I think it's sort of the strategy that has worked the best for us has been going on Instagram and sharing our images and everything. And then also looking for partners who have our same values.
0: What does that mean to purchase coffee fairly to you?
1: So, to me, it just means not only recognizing monetarily the value of coffee, you know, like definitely working outside of the sea market because the sea market is just not sustainable. It's not realistic. It doesn't reflect the actual value of a coffee. But aside from that, it means going outside of the sea market and going outside of maybe even like scoring. Numbers. So then, if a Q grader scores her coffee at an 80, which is like just, you know, like we're told that it's just specialty, it doesn't mean that it's any less valuable than something else, you know, like something that is scoring higher. So also valuing, you know, like the local impacts that you're having on communities, the fact that you value your workers, that you respect them, um, that you value and respect the environment as well, that you're doing what you can to make the working conditions the best that they can be in their your circumstances. So then that is something that I would also like people who are purchasing coffee to take into account whenever they are, you know, like purchasing coffee in a way that is fair. So then that is just like taking into account these factors, you know, like I don't necessarily have a number for this and tell you like, Oh, it needs to be above this or that because everyone's costs are different and the things that they're doing are different as well. So
0: those things, um, like they change, I guess. No, that makes sense. It makes sense to number one, make, make it very clear that the cost of production for every farm is very different because it's easy to kind of say we're paying this much more because the sea market is this, like that's a number that could cover every farm, um, which I'm sure is frustrating to see on your end. Um, but I think something that you said that's really interesting is going outside of scoring. So I think something that we talked about, because we met at um, we met at Rico in April of this year in Boston, um, and it feels like roasters will say, hey, we're paying more for coffee, but there is a demand on quality that seems not viable. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure. So when I say to value coffee outside of scoring, I mean that there are other factors that you need to take into account, right? So then just talking about scoring, I mean, we've had our coffee scored by many different people in many different countries under many different circumstances. And I would say that a lot of them are certified Q graders, which sort of like standardizes everything despite all of that and we have still gotten very different results you know which personally i think that that is completely normal because i find this obsession with standardizing coffee almost silly because from a grower's perspective it's almost impossible to have it rain the same amount um every year or to get the same amount of sunshine and all of these other factors you know that just we don't have control over um so you know, the fact that we get told that we get paid on quality and not even the Q graders can decide on what quality is or what that quality is or the score that we get or the attributes that we have or the aftertaste or the this or the that, you know, like, uh, you know, like, according to out of all of these reports, who do we base it on? Because they, it's not that they are different in like one Or two points is that sometimes some people score it at an 81 and others at an 85, you know, does that mean that the person, even though that's at an 81, who is also a Q grader? I don't know, like that, those things, they just don't make much sense to me. And I think that it's also very unfair because I think that this obsession with standardization and coffee and making everything um, repeatable and all of that, like, it doesn't happen at Origin. And I don't think that it happens in roasting either. You know, like you can get two very similar cups of coffee, and that's great, but they won't be identical. Just like at the point when it touches the barista's hands, you know, like they won't be able to make the same espresso or the same pour over twice. It can be very similar, but it won't be the same. And just because they taste differently, it doesn't mean that the value is different, you know, because coffee goes through so many different hands that you can't make it the same twice. And I think that that is something that instead of penalizing it in coffee, we should value and be like, wow, I had this one really good cup of coffee and just like keep it in your mind and value it for what it was because it's going to happen once and that's okay.
0: Right. Does it happen often where maybe you're working with a roaster or an importer and they make a demand or a request for like a value add. Like if you try doing this, we'll pay more. If we try doing this sort of growing process, we'll pay more. And are those requests viable?
1: Yes. Yeah, so a few years ago, well, maybe last year, I was talking with some roasters and they were like, do you have any fermented coffee? Do you have any of this? And or something like that. And I was like, guys, you know, like we don't even have our own meal. So no, we don't have our own fermented coffee. We are barely learning how to make naturals and how to process honeys this year. So then we haven't gotten there yet. And they'd be like, "Well, you know, if you did this, like one type of fermentation with like this one type of yeast, like, it would all work out, and your coffee would be so great, and this and that." And you know, I really value their opinion, and I'm sure that they are great at roasting, but. That's what they know how to do, you know? And I don't know how to ferment coffee. I know for a fact that they don't know how to ferment coffee either. So then the fact that they're putting this um, pressure on producers, I don't think that it's safe, you know? Like, I am thankful and fortunate that I have this background in sociology that makes me question everything a thousand times more. So then I'm not as susceptible, I guess, to going out of my way and being like, okay, this year we're going to ferment our coffee, even though we don't know what we're doing and we're just going to do it, you know. But I know that other people, other farmers, you know, like they don't have this mindset and they, you know, it's like power structures. They value the input of roasters and importers a lot more than their own experience and their own judgment and what they know how to do. So then if you have someone who has this purchasing power come and tell you, you need to ferment your coffee, I am sure that a lot of them, without having a clue of how to do it, are going to go out of their way and do it. And maybe they'll get lucky and they'll do it really great, but most likely they won't. So then it puts a lot of pressure on producers to sort of jump whenever a, a roaster and importer tells them to jump, even though maybe that's not what they're used to doing. So... It's good if you are telling people, you know, like good meaning, like well meaning um, suggestions, like, oh, maybe you can try this, or I have seen this work at another farm, but not give it as an absolute truth or demand.
0: Right. It's interesting that you talk about the idea of power structures because I think you're absolutely right that when a roaster asks a farmer to do something like try a naturally processed method or to grow something like this, it's really like a play of power to say like, we will pay you more. Cause there's always that kind of like, there's always money involved and it's impossible to ignore that. So like, exactly. How, how do we remove like that power from roasters? I mean, maybe not remove is the right word, but how do we start to acknowledge the fact that this is a system based on power structures?
1: I think that what is happening right now with the coffee crisis it has I has noticed that it has made a lot of producers very angry. Um, and it's the good type of anger that makes you become a lot more aware of where you stand and what is fair and what it isn't. And I have seen them become a lot more aware and be like, "You know what? I am not going to sell my coffee for seventy cents a pound after processing." I am not going to do this because someone told me to. I am not going to do that simply because it's the best thing that I can get at the moment. And they are starting, I think, to respect themselves a lot more out of this frustration and this anger and this lack of recognition. So then even though it's something horrible that is happening right now because a lot of people are really struggling and they're really suffering, but at the same time, this has made them realize that we are the base of this Whole industry, you know, and that without our well our um, well being, without our survival, you know, like no one else is going to have a job, and it has sort of made them realize that they are definitely needed and that they need to be definitely valued a lot more. So I think that it sort of starts with that having producers become aware of their role in the industry and how much they're needed and how they also get to have a say in everything that happens, you know, because just because someone is offering you a dollar for a pound of coffee after processing while the sea market is at 90 cents, that's still not, you know, a good price and you shouldn't feel the pressure to sell your coffee simply because someone tells you to. And I understand that sometimes the situations that you're in force you to do something that you don't want, but as long as you are aware of what you should be receiving and how much you deserve to be valued, I think that that is a start to sort of change these power dynamics that are happening. And on the other end of um, importers and roasters, I think that, If you simply talk to a producer, you know, I understand that a lot of the times there is a language barrier and that it's really hard. But as long as you're asking questions and you see farmers, you know, as real life human beings with families, with a job that is supporting your own livelihood as a roaster, I think that you start to value people more for who they are instead of just some random person within the coffee chain. And I think that slowly, that is maybe how you can start to change these power dynamics. But it definitely needs to start with the empowerment of coffee producers.
0: One thing that really struck me when I, when I first met you, we were at RICO, which is like a big conference bringing all these coffee thinkers together, talking about big issues in coffee. This particular RICO was about the coffee price crisis And when I talked to you, like you, you seemed angry and I wonder what it's like to be in a room, like in a non-producing country, mostly surrounded by people who don't grow coffee talking about a problem that affects you directly.
1: Yeah. So then that was pretty shocking. So fortunately this year I had the opportunity to be a Rico fellow, which is something that I'm really thankful for because it opened the doors to an event that I had really always wanted to attend because it just seemed so cool. And this year the topic was the sea market. And I was like, wow, you know, like people who have a say in this, like are talking about something that is really important and that affects me. So I got there really excited. And once I started seeing, you know, that even though the whole topic was the sea market and how hard it is to be a farmer these days, there were no farmers in the room other than maybe a few people. And if you're going to be talking about someone, then I think that that someone needs to be in the room, especially if you're discussing supposedly on how to help them out and how to realize the struggles that they're going through. So that was really shocking to see. And then at the same time, you know, like this is the specialty coffee association. So then we're supposedly talking about this coffee that gets paid Um, pretty well based on quality and everything else that we have been talking about that isn't always so simple right and we were you know in those rooms and they asked us to have the the group sessions and everyone was just going on about how maybe we needed to create not a C market but an S market for specialty coffee and I was like what You know, like, this is what got us here in the first time. Why are we replicating something that we know for a fact doesn't work? And then someone else's problem was like, where are we going to base this market at? And then someone else was like, we don't need to base it anywhere physically. It can be the internet. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, we're all talking about these things that don't really have, don't really matter as much right now, because right now we're in a crisis. And this is not something, you know, that we're going to solve in a day. But it's something that we need to be talking about for what it is and not replicate the same systems that have brought us here in the first place. And surprisingly enough for me, you know, um, I mentioned that, that hearing all of these conversations going, I didn't know where I stood because if these were, you know, like the big thinkers in the room and this were their concerns, then I don't know what I'm doing as a coffee farmer because... I don't see my future in there and it doesn't seem very good for me at the time or in the future, according to what they were saying. And I was so surprised that the only people who cared about this were the people from Walmart. (laughs) I was like, this is just so wild. You know Um, the things that we hear about this company, they are just pretty bad. Usually, you know, they are known for horrible things that they do and yet their employees, their representatives are the only ones who seem to care. And they were asking a lot about the conditions of what it is to be a coffee producer, our costs, what we were doing, what they could do. I was like, well, you know, there's Walmart in El Salvador, and you've actually opened up your shelves for local roasters of specialty and non-specialty coffee to put their products in. So then that's pretty helpful. And then I went to tell them, you know, like... an. They were like, you know, we feel bad because we represent Walmart and this and that. And I was like, actually don't, because you are doing a lot more than a lot of the people who supposedly should care more and who are supposedly more in tune, you know, with like ethical things. (laughs) Um, They're doing a lot more. And in the case of El Salvador, at least, I know the person who roasts the coffee for Mac Cafe, which is like the coffee side of um mcdonald's and they are paying a lot more for coffee than a lot of specialty importers are so it's just this wild situation where the people who were supposed to be responding to this crisis weren't and then the other people who are often like the villains of everything in the world were being a little bit more comprehensive of what was going on. So it was, yeah, that was a really weird experience for me, but it was very eye-opening as well.
0: What has the coffee price crisis done specifically to you and your farm? How has it affected you?
1: Yeah, so our farm, we have stopped working maybe about a third of the coffee farm because it's just not viable anymore. So that has happened. And then we have also had to lay off a lot of people. And every year we used to give everyone, we would like raise their wages. And this year, well, for the past like two years, we haven't been able to do that. So, you know, like that has affected their households as well. So it has been pretty bad. Then we have also had to take out a bunch of loans from the bank. And in El Salvador, there are only two banks That are giving loans for coffee because it's so risky right now, and the interest rates that they offer are extremely high. And one year we were only able to pay the interest rates and not really like pay our loans. So then that sucked as well. We lost maybe over five hundred thousand US dollars just in that. Um, So yeah, it's been pretty bad and. This is, you know, like the best case scenario for, for El Salvador right now because we're also part of a local co-op and they are really good. Like they are maybe one of the best functioning co-ops in El Salvador right now. They're very transparent. They're very efficient. They have their own roastery. So then they make a lot of more earnings. And despite that, since such few people are turning in coffee because a lot of them have shut down their farms their productivity has gone down. So then that has impacted everyone else's prices. So that has impacted us a lot as well, because that used to be sort of like a more stable way to sell our coffee, and now it isn't. So yeah,
0: definitely a lot of bad things. Yeah, no, none of that sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty jarring to hear it all like laid out like that too. And I think it bears repeating because I think that's still, this hasn't landed for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. I think that a lot of people, they know that something is going on, but they don't really know what it is. And I think that those would be the majority of the people that are more aware. But generally, I think that people don't know how bad it is and how we're not being, you know, like, very dramatic about this like what I just told you it's not even you know like the worst it just it is what it is and it's our reality and like I said we are one of the best case scenarios of farms right now in El Salvador a lot of them they just shut down you know they locked the gates of the farm they fired everyone and that's it and it's so ironic because this is something that my dad tells us all the time you know like my friends that well his friends who used to be coffee producers the ones who shut their farms about three to four years ago they are doing a lot more they are a lot healthier they are a lot more they feel a lot safer financially than people who are still in coffee right now so he's like what if i would have just like shut down the farm a few years ago we wouldn't be in this situation right now But then he takes it all back and he's like, well, but then like four or five families wouldn't have a job. And then like maybe like 20 or 30 people who are seasonal workers wouldn't have a job. And then the 20 or 30 um, coffee pickers that come for the harvest wouldn't have a job either. So, yeah, it's pretty bad. Like it's actually really bad right now, the situation.
0: So what does viability look like for you? How do we begin to... Change that trajectory.
1: Yeah. So, this is maybe our last year that we will be working the farm if it doesn't work out. You know, we've, with our sisters, we've become a lot more involved and we have been um, going to fairs because we have realized that that's the only way that you can make a human connection with roasters and with importers and that has paid off pretty well so then we're selling our coffee definitely at a higher price at the sea market um then we still have to see if that's if that's enough you know and if it's not then I think that this might be the last year that we're working the farm so that's something that we're facing at the moment
0: that's that's really incredibly real and I'm honored that you shared that because like I, again, people aren't realizing quite how serious this is. Like, coffee will be gone, and it was incredible. Like, I'm feeling a little lost for words, honestly, because um, you are the base of the whole industry, which you just said too, and I don't know why we haven't. Yeah, we haven't reacted appropriately.
1: Yeah, um, you know, and I think that it's just this lack of empathy, really, that is part of the problem because. For example, once you get to know about what is going on and what happens, you know, like you're a person and you're a good person. So then that causes something in you when you start asking all of these questions. And I think that that's part of what needs to happen as well. You know, if you are a coffee shop owner and you get your coffee from elsewhere, ask your roaster how much they're paying for coffee. If you're a roaster, ask your importer how much they're paying for coffee. Um, If you're an importer, ask your coffee producers how much they're spending on producing this coffee. And I think that just by asking these questions, you start to humanize coffee a lot more and you start seeing that behind, you know, like coffee, there is the life of the barista, the life of the roaster, the life of the importer, the life of the coffee farmer, the life of the coffee transporter, the life of the coffee um, picker. Everyone else, you know, like there is just so many people that depend on this crop that there is no room for us to be selfish about it and not be transparent either. Is there anything else that you want people to know about you and your farm? Um, Yeah, I would like everyone to know that our doors are open. So if you want to come and visit, let us know. I think that people also need maybe to see for themselves what is going on um if you prefer another country you can ask me and i can if i know someone there i can ask them um if you have any questions you know my instagram is public you can ask me whatever you want the about coffee production um because i really do believe that as long as this information is out there and as long as it's accessible and as long as People are are at least slightly interested in finding out what's going on. Um, then things can change. So if you have any questions, just like ask them. Don't be afraid, don't be scared, don't be embarrassed, you know. There is room for everyone in the industry to grow and to be better about what we're doing and how we're doing things, because like I said, a lot of people depend on this and we all deserve to be recognized for what we do because we're all doing a great job and that needs to be recognized.
0: Carla, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for sharing your stories.
1: No, thank you for being interested in about telling these stories about things that happen in this industry. And if there's anything else, just just let me know.
0: I know I already have a list of questions I want to ask you for like a follow up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And just one more thing. Yeah because I don't want this to be depressing and horrible for whoever listens to this. But, (laughs) you know, I go to a lot of these meetings and coffee, and it's usually a lot of older, (laughs) older men who are very (laughs) negative about how things are looking, and they feel very sad about it, how it is, because like I said, our story is not unique. It's very common for a lot of people. But fortunately despite all of this um you know like you've heard me laughing about throughout this whole interview and it's not that I think it's funny it's just that we have been saying in El Salvador that it's like no se gana pero se goza so it's like maybe you're not winning but at least you're enjoying it so it's sort of like making the most out of things you know so whenever you go to these meetings you hear all of these men just like laughing about how ridiculous it is that someone offered them like a dollar per pound for their coffee and they're just like crying like they're they're you know like crying out of laughter because it's just so ridiculous. So then we're definitely struggling. That's very true. But our take on things has been to adapt to the situation to see what we can do to move on because this is something that we love to do and you know like we would give anything well we're giving everything that we have to keep working the coffee farms so it's something that we genuinely love doing and that we do with a lot of pride Um, and that even though things are really bad we're making the best out of what we have so even though it's pretty bad you know we're still enjoying it as much as we can
0: that's that's nice that you were so generous to help end on a positive note That was very kind of you. (laughs) You know, it's not like the most positive thing, but yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you again for being here, and it was an honor to talk to you. Yeah,
1: no problem. And just let me know if you need anything else, if you have any more questions, if you'd like to discuss anything else as well. I'm just looking for
0: a better day. Boss Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez you can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com slash boss We have over 80 patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible. And that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund, we pay for website hosting, and we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com bossbarista boss barista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode and tag us, that would be amazing. We're at boss barista podcast on Instagram and boss underscore barista on Twitter. You can also send me an email at boss podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.